Hi folks, David Jameson here, one half of Contacast. Cat uh, Boyd will be back very soon. She's just finished her run of wonderful uh, election shows. But today, for my last uh, sort of Contacast and friends, if you like, I have uh, two wonderful uh, additions, two members of the Conta editorial board, Sarah Bennett and Gregor Clooney. Thanks very much for coming on, guys. An honor to be here. Um, <laughs> and uh, we'll be discussing uh, some of the big stories that have, that have been going on. We'll be talking a wee bit about the, the Scottish elections later, but obviously there's been a lot of stuff happening uh, in the meantime. Um, I'm a bit flustered uh, and a bit sweaty for those of you who, uh, who are listening and don't have to be subjected to the horror of my slightly kind of pink uh, uh, sort of uh, face after running back here from Kenmuir Street uh, in the south side of Glasgow where a massive protest just stopped the eviction uh, of two men uh, in Pollock Shields. Um, now Glasgow has uh, a history of uh, preventing these kinds of evictions that have been successful campaigns in the, in the past but I have to say this is by far the biggest and most politically radical example of that I've ever seen. By the end uh, of the incident in Kenmuir Street, I should probably give you the background. This morning, two men were taken into a van. Uh, it's obviously Eid uh, in, a, in a very uh, Muslim area. Uh, this is it's obviously something of a provocation, though I have been told that the reason that border police do this uh, on days like Eid and at weddings is because they have a stronger sense of where everyone is. Uh, on that day. So they obviously knew that, you know, or suspected these men they wanted to pick up would be there because of the celebration. I mean, it's that cynical. Uh, however, they were, the van was quickly surrounded. Um, and it has to be said that none of this would have been possible without the work of anti-evictions uh, campaigners and the tenants movement and so on in, in recent months, because the response was just lightning. It was just straight away um, but by the end of the day, the standoff ensued, went on for a long time. There was a very high level of politics. Lots of the um, local Muslim community had one uh, uh, resident making a speech where he said, we can do Eid later, right? Right now, we need to stop this from happening. And he also said, you know, they're always trying to deport us back to Afghanistan and Syria and Iraq, back to countries that the British state has destroyed. And now the British state wants to deport us back there. So, like, I mean, just speeches on fire basically and uh, it ended with the police having to release the two men to by this point a crowd of about a thousand people the crowd then marched them down to the safety of the local mosque so the the, the, the state weren't even able to dictate dictate the terms on which these men were released they had to release them to the crowds who said well, we don't trust you we're going to take them to a sort of place of traditional safety so an astonishing outcome. I mean, I, I've not seen something like that in Glasgow in, in, in many a year. And the scale of it was just, I mean, as I was leaving, it felt like a match day. You know, there were the people were just thronging in the streets. There were car cavalcades of like uh, young local guys driving their cars and tooting their horns and stuff. I mean, they had taken over the, the, the entire area of this movement by the end of the, by the end of the day. So I'm a little bit, uh, <laughs> A, bit, a little bit blown away uh, by it all. Uh, I was not expecting today to, to be like that. I have to say it's a very good way to end lockdown. Um, 
So, yeah, I, I, that's me uh, sort of uh, exploded all that out there. Um, uh, Sarah, you were saying before before I came on that you used to live there back back in um, the 90s, did you say? Um, I mean, was it quite a politicised place then? Yeah, um, it definitely had a vibe to it. It's, I mean, when I was living there, it was 20, 21 years ago. And obviously, as you've, you've mentioned, quite a substantial Muslim community. And it was a community that kind of owned that part of Pollock Shields as well, in, in a very good way, I think. And it was not afraid about being out on the streets. I was talking to you about in the summers when there'd be cricket tournaments on the telly, you'd get them coming out into the streets and having their own cricket tournaments, obviously with lots of windows nearby, ball, cricket balls flying past um, as well. But it was a really good, really good vibe to it. But in terms of being politicised, I mean... I do remember at one point um, around the age, end of the 90s, there was an incident um, where there'd been attacks by young Muslim men on young white Scottish women. And it was a time when the BNP was quite active around Glasgow as well. And what was really good about it is that the community really came together and kind of owned the problem and said, look, we have to sort this out. All of us together have to sit down and sort it out and take, take collective responsibility of what's going on and find a solution. Because if we don't, the BNP will be in here. They're already leafleting. Um, all the police are going to get involved and that's not going to serve anyone's interest. And it was a really useful, uh, it was a big, large meeting that we had with the imam from the local mosque and the community coming out, the teachers, really mixed. And that came about, I think, because you had people on the ground, activists, socialists on the ground who could intervene and pull that together. Um, so that was really important. And I'm hoping that what you've described today is kind of a bit of a legacy of that tradition of we will look after, you know, you said about the, the, the two guys getting escorted to the mosque, that taking control of it, this is our problem and we're going to deal with it. I think it's really um, positive to show what can happen at a community level um, to deal with issues that might seem completely out of our hands and we can't do anything about it, but actually getting people together, can, you can really find solutions to these problems. So that's, it's really good news. I was really heartened to see my old street on the, on the news in such a positive way today. Yeah, it's, uh, it's totally what you just said. It's, it's, it's the difference between, because, you know, with that issue in particular, right, uh, it's obviously become this huge thing in some communities, like with Rotherham and stuff as well, of like, uh, oh, this thing has happened. And I think sometimes it's too easy, especially this is what happened in Rotherham, for local councils and stuff just to say, well, you know, this is, uh, these accusations are, this is just racism or whatever. It's actually a much more democratic and healthy thing to say, look, there's, you know, sexual violence in this community as there is in every community and it's our responsibility to do something about it. It's very much, I mean, obviously it's a very different situation today, but like uh, the ethos is very much that. The ethos, so the speeches that were being made to the police were very much, I mean, they made the, they made the police look like children. You know what I mean? They said things like, come on, why can't we be civilized? There was a guy who got on the megaphone and said, you know, we're peaceful. Go back to your, your stations in, in peace. What you're doing here is, is disruptive. It's chaotic. It's violent. You need to go back. We, we're, we're taking control of this. Um, and it really, I mean, the state looked appalling today. Police Scotland looked appalling today. Um, and every so often they would have this little provocation where they would just try and, you know, they'd get into shoving matches with groups of the protesters who, who weren't instigating it. And it just looked un unbelievably childish. 
Um, and, you know, it was just is it, the fact that it was the community itself made such a big difference because you had people hanging out their windows and shouting, let my neighbour go. That's a difficult thing to argue with, you know, in terms of this idea of community policing. It's a difficult thing to argue with when everyone on the street is telling you that what you're doing is wrong and irresponsible. Um, and uh, I saw, because it was a bit of a car crash for, for, the, for, for the politicians as well, I saw um, Nicholas Sturgeon saying, this has nothing to do with Scotland. This is about the Home Office base in London. Well, of course, it is about the Home Office, right? This is about Pretty Patel ramping up the, uh, the so-called you know, hostile environment. But I'm sorry, nine in 10 cops that were there today that I could see were Police Scotland. This couldn't have happened without them. There's no way. If this had just been the Home Office uh, police, the, the, the Border Police, uh, they, this would have been over in minutes because they would have been totally, totally overwhelmed instantly. Uh, this went on all day because, as I counted, 12 Police Scotland riot vans turned up. And by the end of it, I could see, I don't know, maybe a couple of hundred police officers. There were police on horseback. Um, there was a huge deployment of, of forces today in the south side of Glasgow. That's why this went on all day. It's purely because of Police Scotland. And Police Scotland are very much the tailored police force of the Scottish government. It's very much their, their project. Gregor, did you, did you see a lot of the stuff on social media? Yeah, and it was great to see, really, a, a proud day for Glasgow, I think. And, and thankfully, Glasgow has a really strong record and tradition of opposing immigration rates. Um, and I think for me, this was always a, a substantial part of my support for Scottish independence was to try and peel back this particularly barbaric facet of the British state, despite being a belligerent imperial or now sub-imperial power, which does make regions of the world unlivable. Uh, for civilian populations. Um, Britain has a terrible record um, of you know, welcoming refugees and, um, and of responding appropriately and with humanity uh, to asylum um, applications. And I know that there's a promised overhaul of the system, um, which was announced in the, in the recent Queen's speech, but you know, certainly under Pretty Patel, you can't see this going in a in a more progressive um, direction. I think, you know, just fabulous to see that community cohesion um, and solidarity. And it, it, it does give you kind of pride for the city, but also these are the moments where we can build something different, where we can build a power uh, from below. Um, and I, I think just to get that, that type of unequivocal win today, where actually, uh, the, these men were unarrested, um, I think is really meaningful. Um, and that's that's the type of victory that you can start to, to build a campaign out of. So no, it was great to see. Yeah, totally. And, and like, a few days ago, right, I mean, I was looking at the Queen's speech and all the measures in there to crack down on protests and all the, you know, I mean, it was, it was, um, it had a kind of populist kind of nationalist sort of, um, tent to it and that was built into the anti the kind of repressive anti-protest type stuff and I was just looking at it thinking god this is grim do you know what I mean and there's there's no viable electoral opposition uh, to this and then you're just reminded a few days later that there are still these popular traditions you know what I mean that you can't you can't just get away with whatever you want that there's like a like a moral economy you know what I mean like that entire community 
looked at that and didn't didn't question whether or not the state had the authority to do this. They instantly declared that the state didn't have the authority to do this. Um, and it reminds you, you know, it's not it's not just as simple as oh here's a here's a bunch of legislation in the Queen's speech and this is what we're going to impose. It's not how it works. Um, and as I said, you know, it shows how important though those efforts in building up. Uh, like those networks in uh, in Glasgow have been in in, in recent months, um, because I'm not so, I'm not I, I don't assume that the capacity would have been there. There's always been a response to this sort of stuff in Glasgow, but the capacity on display today was of a different order. And you know, it's, and and you know, it was great that you know, like trade union branches and all that, you know, kind of showed up uh, throughout the day. Um, it just showed, you know, there was a real. And I I remember when I went watching that huge rally at the end, people around the mosque, I thought, if this had gone on for another hour, there would have been 2,000 people here. Like, it had that explosive escalating feel to it, which is I'm pretty sure why uh, Police Scotland decided to release them, because they thought, otherwise, we're going to end up with a riot on our hands that we just can't control. Uh, so, yeah. Um, and as I was walking away at the end, there was a huge Palestine flag flying over Kenmuir Street. And I was shocked by just how much people were drawing the things together. And it wasn't, it, they didn't, that wasn't coming from some organized, you know, lefty renter mobs that you sometimes hear about. Those links were actually being made organically by the people who lived there. Um, you know, there's a lot of awareness of, of what's happening in Palestine. And, and, and as that guy who was on the megaphone was saying, these things are linked. If there are refugees in the city, it's largely because they've come from places like Palestine, like Afghanistan, like Iraq, that have been mauled by Western foreign policy. So there was a very clear kind of drawing of those those two things together. And you know, again, you know, it's it's there was a beautiful there were some beautiful images today, but there's also some tragic ones still coming out of uh, coming out of uh, out of Palestine. Um, it's a strange one, you know, because I, I just, one of the things that I find hateful about uh, what, what's going on in Palestine is it seems that every three years or something, there's another hideous, uh, you know, escalation uh, by the Israeli state. Um, but I think there are some new, new kind of dynamics here. Um, like Gregor, I mean, I've, I don't know how many protests I've been on with you over, over Palestine over the year. What's your take of the, on, the, on the current ton of events? Yeah, I think, you know, it's very heartening to, to hear that there were uh, Palestine flags on, on the demo today. And I do think Palestine is a question which always has and will continue to radicalise young thinkers and activists in Scotland. It's this fundamental historical injustice uh, which continues to, to stay in our 21st century and, and shame the international community. And I think for many people of a progressive bent, it's ideologically ruptural because, because the framing imposed by the mainstream media is so fundamentally incompatible with reality on the ground. So again, you know, um, as we're well used to by now, the BBC will, will relentlessly peddle this myth of an exchange of hostilities between two mutually opposing sides, entirely abstracted from historical and legal context. Um, and, and this type of narrative making conceals a conflict which could scarcely be more asymmetrical in terms of its resourcing, capacity, technological capability, 
an impact on the respective civilian populations. So again, we've, we've seen airstrikes on the world's largest open-air prison in, in Gaza. Um, and yeah, it, it's, hard, it's hard to watch. I think, you know, Operation Cast Lead in 2008 was one of the real kind of radicalizing moments for me. And as you said, David, this, you know, every few years you get this um, eruption um, of, of violence um, in Palestine. But I think the important thing to remember is that whilst um, the situation will receive international media attention at these moments, human rights violations, atrocities are a very regular weekly occurrence um, in occupied Palestinian territories. Um, and this is where, you know, the, the kind of abstract calls for peace are just very empty um, because, because there is no stability, there is no peace for Palestinians at any point in time. Uh, but no, it's, it's extremely difficult coverage to watch, as you say. Yeah, no, it is. But I, I do also think, and it's something that people have been pointing out, and it's still, look, the, the, the Palestinian question from like a strategic point of view is extremely difficult because the Palestinians are um, in a very weakened position. It's not like South Africa where, um, you know, the, the, the black working class population outnumbers the white population by a factor of, you know, several times. I mean, I think there were only something like three million um, white South Africans at the time of the apartheid state. The difference now is, of course, you have this kind of a brutal apartheid regime, but that um, uh, the, the the populations are roughly equivalent. But in terms of like armed force, they're nowhere near equivalent because Israel is armed to the teeth and trained and funded by Western powers uh, for, for whom their colony is essentially, you know, it's, it's a project of, of, of Western power fundamentally. Otherwise, it wouldn't exist. Um, and, you know, over recent years, we've had people, because I often have people say to me, even people who are kind of left wing, they'll say, you know, why, why is the left so obsessed with this question, right? And the implication is, well, surely it has something to do with anti-Semitism. You know, some people have like, they've really um, convinced themselves of their own bullshit uh, on this front. I think there are obvious reasons why Palestine is such an international symbol. It's the last standout example of that colonial project that otherwise collapsed in the 20th century uh, under the force of revolutions. So, you know, um, uh, uh, Rhodesia, so-called, is gone. Zimbabwe, you know, the apartheid South Africa is gone. Lots of these examples of these types of states, of these kind of racial hierarchy type states have disappeared. But there's still one that's not only still on the go it's thriving it's achieving its aims in terms of the continual uh you know gradual ethnic cleansing of the palestinian people and almost everyone in western politics treats it as as you say as, as a, a moral problem these tribes have been fighting each other you know forever a totally fake history constructed around something which is very much a 20th and 21st century phenomenon um, so I think there are obvious reasons why it appeals to people uh, on, on, on that basis. Sarah, see on that question of, you know, this accusation that has been made, I mean, do you think, 
I mean, obviously in the last couple of years, pro-Palestine activists have been under enormous pressure. Do you think this is a bit of a moment where, um, you know, it can be, we can claw back the, the right to protest and to speak out on this issue? Well, I certainly hope so. And I think you've got a coming together of uh, a various set of circumstances, not just around the conflict itself, but also the, the wider picture around what's happening in Israel itself. I mean, obviously, Netanyahu is under immense pressure. He's had, he's gone through, what is it, four elections in two years, couldn't get a majority parliament together. He's a, he, he himself, and how many accusations of corruption charges is he up against as well? So Netanyahu is not in a particularly strong position. And I do wonder whether this is partly used to try and bolster support um, for him. But it's in a very, very divisive way because the situation is different from 2014 in now that the attacks are happening within Israel or Palestine 48, as it's often referred to as well, um, with these armed right-wing Israeli mobs going in and beating up people in their homes, dragging them out of their homes, beating them up on the street. You saw, of course, the appalling uh, actions around the Al-Aqsa Mosque as well. And I think that it it's just feels a little bit different. Um, and of course, now all of these images are getting broadcast around the world by social media. So we can see what's happening because I think, as you've alluded to, Gregor's pointed out, the reporting from the British media, as a lot of the Western media, is so distorted, it's untrue. And if you just, you know, it's like the Israel, the Israeli army is obviously trying to create facts on the ground by basically trying to not, it's trying to push back the Palestinians to such an extent as that they are pushed out either by building on their territories, the occupied territories, um, and creating a, a reality where Israel just pushes further and further um, into, into Palestine. And uh, Western media and media in the UK is trying to create facts over the, over the media ways by portraying it in a completely distorted, unequal fashion. And I just think there is now an opportunity because of, you know, the, what's going on inside of Israel itself, I think, and the, the, the unpopularity um, amongst uh, many Israelis of Netanyahu, but also what we see in that people are actually beginning to see what's going on on the ground inside Israel, as well as um, what's going on with Gaza. There could be a chance to, to resurrect that. And I think the whole, um, going back, if you think about it, to when Corbyn was in power, and you had Margaret Hodge um, talking about how she felt really unsafe in the streets of Britain, and that it was a bit like the run-up to Hitler taking over Germany. I don't know if you remember that. I mean, it was absolutely, you know, nonsensical, but actually really insulting. I thought that she could even draw that uh, kind of comparison. And the, the idea was that people, Maureen Lipman, you know, the broadcaster saying, I'm, I'm going to go and live in Israel because that's the only place where Jewish people can feel safe. I do think it raises the question of, you know, being able to ask about the state of Israel, which has always been part of the Zionist project as, as actually it's the only place that Jews can live in safety on the world. You know, Jewish people are always going to be uh, the um, victims of, um, of punishments, of pogroms, et cetera, et cetera, with real reason behind that, if we look historically, of course, you know, of, of the oppression of Jewish people in history. But the, this idea that the Jewish state would offer them, you know, sanctuary. I don't think when you're looking at images coming out of Israel, you can say that today. What does Israel actually mean? It's not just for the Palestinians. What does Israel mean for the Israelis? It means a perpetual state 
a, a militarized state. It means habitual incursions into Gaza and bombing of innocent people. And now it means people being beaten up within your streets as well. So I don't know. I just hope it would open up a bigger question about what is going on with the state of Israel and the history of Palestine. Um, but I, I mean, it's awful. I feel really distressed looking at the scenes coming out. I've seen dead children um, on, on various websites today. It's, it's appalling. But what I do take uh, hope from is this resilience, seven decades of resilience that it, it won't go away. And I think that's something that, you know, whenever we feel really hopeless and demoralized in the West, it's about thinking about Palestine is the torch that continues you know, the flame that continues to burn, really, for all of us that are looking for justice in the world. And, and I think, uh, sorry, David, I, I think Sarah raises a really important point there to connect it to the monstering of carbon and the weaponization of anti-Semitism. I think this is a crucial moment for the left in Britain. And if we accept um, the this equivalence between pro-Palestine activism and anti-Semitism, then we risk narrowing the scope of public debate potentially forever. Um, and this was a, an attempt to sanitize and domesticate a potential uh, Corbyn-led um, British government, but also to prevent in future anyone with this politics and, and this worldview, which is out with the scope of, of the um, extreme center, US aligned uh, foreign policy um, to, to ever achieve ascendancy um, in, in Britain. And, and for me, I think it's about time the left had a backbone on, on this stuff. The stuff which, which I find really infuriating is this kind of deferential, introspective, or, or maybe if, if they say that we're racist, then maybe we actually are racist and maybe we should go on unconscious bias training and so on. Um, I, I think it's both an appalling spectacle, but um, especially in light of the fact that the fundamental parameters of the conflict are uncontestable. This, it's not like the, an intricate moral maze. And I, I do speak to people who are terrified of, of touching the question with a barge pole because it's constructed as so complex. It's not very complex. Um, Israel has been in flagrant violation of international law in its occupation of Palestinian territory since 1967. It has aggressively been pursuing uh, settlement um, it, an ethnic cleansing um, of, of Palestinian people in contravention of a list of UN Security Council resolutions as long as you're armed. Um, and, and these are the liberal institutions of, of the global capitalist system who hold Israel in contempt in, in, in the strongest possible terms. Um, and, you know, simply acknowledging that factual reality uh, tends to place you on, on, on the kind of political extreme in this uh, country now, which is obviously wild. Um, but I, I, I do think that the policy of appeasement on, of, the, of the Corbyn leadership did not work. Uh, there's no, there's no point at which they're going to accept your um, backsliding. Um, I, I think you have to maintain a principles and, and correct position. And 
um, and stand up for yourself, I think, um, most fundamentally. I, I, t I totally agree with that. Um, and, you know, it, as Sarah says, this, the, 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 the Zionist argument, and it must be said, you know, because that, this is also a word that is, people have attempted to outlaw. I don't know why. I mean, it's a completely legitimate point of conversation. You can't discuss history, uh, you know, of this question without discussing this idea. When the, the Zionist idea was first founded, in the late 1900s, I was actually um, uh, in a museum in, in uh, Vienna, which of course one of the most important cities for the development of the uh, of the Zionist movement. Um, that was where Theodor Herzl was one of the leading uh, theoreticians of the movement, and it was done in a mood that you can understand. Like you may, you know, I, I think that the, there was always a, an argument within progressive Jewish circles in Europe between. And it's a familiar argument for people who experience racism. It's the same argument in some senses that took place in the United States, in the African-American community. You always had those like Malcolm X, at least while he was in the Nation of Islam, who said, the only thing we can do is separate. It's a completely defensive and a racialist idea. We are incompatible with the white community. They will never accept us. The only thing to do is to separate into our own nation and defend ourselves on, on, with a state. You know, because you look around the world and the state, especially when you're in a, a persecuted racial minority, the state is always so terrifying to you. What if we had our own state? It, it makes a certain intuitive sense. There was always, of course, people in the African-American movement like the Black Panthers or more mainstream figures in the civil rights movement like uh, Martin Luther King, who always said, no, the, the argument has to be a more radical one about changing society more broadly, collectively across racial uh, divides. There was always that in, in uh, European Jewish communities as well. You had movements like the Bund, who were like a socialist movement who said, no, Europe is my home. And I believe that was actually a Bund slogan, Europe is our home, right? Like we're not leaving. I'm not, we're not being chased away. Um, but, you know, but it, it wasn't a, a progressive idea, the Zionist idea, but you could understand uh, the impulses that led to it, the feelings of social isolation and weakness that led to it. That's one thing right? Uh, that's not what's going on in Israel. You, the, the reality after, uh, you know, 100 years, uh, or not 100 years after the founding of the state, but in, 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 in the 21st century, the reality is brutal racism. And that ideology has changed. It's changed from one that was a diaspora ideology of intellectuals who wanted a way out of oppression. It's changed from that into the ideological justification of a colonial state that asserts the racial superiority of the Jewish population in law. That is a completely different proposition from what was imagined abstractly in, in, in Europe. Um, so yeah, and I, I agree, Gregor, it's, it's, it's one of the most morally black and white questions on the earth today. I don't think I can take it if I hear another BBC News report talking about how complex the situation in Palestine is least complex. There are a lot of complex things in the world. This isn't that complex. Um, so no, I, I agree. And, and the other thing that I was alluded to was, uh, I think Sarah by yourself, is there is a change in the dynamics around the, quest, the, the situation in Israel itself. So now the, um, the Palestinian, parts of the Palestinian population who don't live in the West Bank or in Gaza, but within the territory of actually existing Israel uh, are being persecuted and are fighting back in a kind of an unprecedented way. 
Um, and it's really interesting that the Israeli state's response to that is to bomb Gaza because they don't want that. Uh, they what they want is a conflict with Hamas, where Hamas is isolated from other Palestinian forces. Uh, they are they're more happy with that than with open a civil rights movement on the streets of Israel uh, as well. So there's a hope that a, a different dynamic can emerge there uh, and, and kind of break the, the deadlock on this issue. But I totally agree. You know, if you hope for that, it's not enough. You, you actually need to stand up and say, no, we have every right to discuss this. Um, I, I, in a grim way, the one thing I, I always think about Palestine is this ends, this ends dramatically right, one way or the other, right, I don't, I, don't, I don't even want to think about what the successful creation of, um, you know, the, the final um, kind of settlement of this colonial uh, uh, regime would be, what would that even look like, the entire Palestinian population thrown into global diaspora, you know, I mean, it's, it doesn't bear thinking about, but, the, but, you know, that or a just settlement is, is what we're looking at, if you look at the changes of demographics across that territory, that's actually what we're looking at. History is not going to look kindly on people who, who are going around saying it's complex and so on. Like, um, so yeah, I mean, I think, I think there's, there's still scope there for, for, for hope and, and like the Palestinian people are, are demonstrating. When you're just talking about, you know, how is it going to get resolved ultimately? I think it's always going to be resolved no, it's not going to be going to get resolved between those Palestine and Israel itself. And the best chance probably that we've had recently was with the Arab Spring 10 years ago, um, with those uprisings, with, with Palestinian flags being flown. It's a very central demand, actually, to the Arab Spring as well. And I think probably, I would imagine that's what we're looking for as well. But I just think the continuation, we're not in that period. We don't think at the moment these things can change very quickly, of course. But I think just what's really important for, you know, wherever we find ourselves, that the supporters of Palestine and justice for Palestine will, will make sure that we are as visible and out on the streets as possible in our support, because I think that is just absolutely essential. And those, those images do go back to Palestine. And just to know that, that that flame is being, that torch is being kept alight outside of, of the region itself, I think it, it's crucial. Yeah. I mean, you often hear, uh, you know, uh, people saying, you know, the Arab Spring as a project ended in disaster, which it did, right? I mean, there's no, there's no question that it ended in, you know, bloodbaths in Libya and, and Syria and, uh, and so on. And it was repressed in general, you know, with the counter-revolution in Egypt and, and so on. Still, though, it's remarkable because that's quite an old kind of socialist argument that you need the wider array of the working class, basically, the, the working class masses of, countries like Egypt in particular, which of course borders um, uh, Palestine and Israel, uh, to be that decisive force that can, that can change the dynamic. You know, and on the one hand, yeah, okay, it was beaten back, but it also happened. That, I mean, it, the, the, there was also a moment there where the Arab working class were united in a common project that united contempt for domestic elites, as well as, you know, the overarching force of kind of Western the, the architecture of imperialism in that in that part of the world, and that included Israel. So that is a real formula. Like we've actually seen it come into play. Sorry, you're going to come in there, Gregor. Yeah, I, I think I don't think you know. Thinking optimistically, I don't think this is a situation which can persist indefinitely. 
I, I think you're quite right, David, to say that this is a holdout in terms of formal, legally inscribed, racist, colonial settler state. Um, certainly has no place in the 21st century, but I, I, I can't imagine that um, it will continue indefinitely. And I think once the tide starts to turn, there's going to be a lot of folk that start to look really silly um, in terms of the, their support for, for, um, for this project. I, I, I do think any solution uh, which is reached has to involve the right to return um, of Palestinian refugees. Um, and what you were talking about, David, in terms of, of the scattering of Palestinian diaspora, we have to remember that this, this has happened throughout the 20th century and into our own century. There are more registered Palestinian refugees than there are people in Scotland. Um, and there are expected to be at least another million and a half of which are unregistered descendants um, of original refugees. So um, there has to be a settlement which allows um, those people to go home um, and rebuild a sense of home and community if, if they do want to. Um, and yeah, you know, there has to be recognition of the right of, of the Palestinian people to to, to have true independence and sovereignty in terms of their, um, yeah, their civic and political lives. Um, but I, I do think when, when, the state, when the tide starts to turn, things could change very quickly. Um, and, and, and whilst the contribution may feel small, I, I think um, organizing, you know, support for boycott, divestment and sanctions, um, sending um, delegations of trade unionists and, and progressive people to, to Palestine, uh, creating art and culture and political messaging in support of the Palestinian people. This stuff does matter. Um, it does matter. Yeah, yeah. And um, I, I, I'm, I'm kind of going to make a segue from sort of big global and profound questions into into the Scottish scene, which, you know, after the elections is a bit stayed and so on. But, I mean, there are interesting relationships between Scotland and these bigger questions. So yesterday on our last election show, I asserted, and I was rebuffed by um, an SNP councillor in Glasgow, Graham Campbell, who said, Scotland, Scotland can't do anything. We don't have foreign policy powers to help the Palestinians. It seems totally obvious to me that in the Queen's speech, you know, you had one of the things was uh, to ban public sector bodies from engaging in boycott, divestment and sanctions. Right. But that did make me think, oh, yeah. So like, there's not a lot that goes on of that in Britain. Right. There is some. But I thought uh, so. Well, that kind of shows that that's not true. Like there is stuff that could be going on right now. The statements that came from the SNP on this question, particularly from Alan Smith, were very strong. Like they were saying things like the, the, the I mean, to not stop their weak end compared to the scale of the problem, but they are strong by historical standards of the SNP. The SNP said, uh, oh, well, the UK state should consider, you know, reducing its diplomatic contact with Israel and, and, and look at, um, you know, boycotting goods from uh, settler uh, communities. Uh, and I thought, yeah, that's good, but you could do that now. There's a consulate in Edinburgh. Right, you could you could refuse to recognise that today. Uh, we could be talking about 
and look, I don't even know how much trade is done between public sector, you know, procurement bodies and, and uh, Israeli settlements right now. But what a thing it, message it would be to say, as it happens, we are rolling out this rule, rule on procurement that we won't buy anything from that's produced in, a, in one of these illegal settlements. I mean, what a message that would send just to even say that. So there are things going on now, but and, and this kind of dovetails with what happened today down at uh, Kenmuir Street. Um, the Nicholas Sturgeon put out a statement saying, uh, nothing to do with me, right? This is this was the home office. This is nothing to do with me, uh, despite the fact that I counted 12 Police Scotland riot vans down there and this couldn't happen without Police Scotland. Um, you know, it's we're, we're still in this bind where the SNP, who of course returned 64 seats in the recent election, they're in this position to say everything that is bad that's happening is happening because of Westminster, right? And of course, yeah, that's where a lot of these strategies are being cooked up, whether it's Palestine, whether it's the hostile environment, whether it's the attacks on the right to protest, whether it's the um, anti-working class policies that are sure to start rolling out, already rolling out um, in response to the economic crisis off the back of the pandemic. Yes, it's true, all this stuff is originating in Westminster, but you also have a British political establishment, a political establishment in Scotland who want to remain friends with the business community, who want to remain friends with, you know, the international rules-based order, so-called, that is, you know, the same forces that defend the Israeli state and talk up how complex it all is. They want to keep these friends. So they're going to continue to, 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 to behave in this, in this kind of way. Was that a bit grim for you, Gregor? I mean, whatever else you might say about the elections. I mean, I, I didn't really feel annoyed about the outcome. You know, it was still, I suppose, you know, it's an improvement on what's going down on Westminster. But I also did just think like, God, here we go, another five years of this equivocal shit, basically. Yeah, I, I think the fear of many of us that were involved in um, NDREF campaign and in the run up to 2014 is that the collapse of the independence movement into big tent electoralism would procure this generational hegemony uh, for the SNP and that that is what has eventuated and I think with every election cycle the SNP leadership have become more cynical and I think its voters have become less enthused in in general um, and and expectations have been lowered in terms of, of what the SNP will do um, in government. Um, and I think we live in a really strange time. I, I think Scottish politics are, are hallucinatory in the sense that the next referendum is forever over the horizon. It's just forever around the bend. Um, and we have kind of suspended in thin air these kind of contradictions um, in the SNP's economic policy and prospectus for an independent Scotland, this perpetual dynamic of the SNP as a government in opposition um, allows them to straddle these contradictions in a really anachronous way. So SNP economic policy is orthodox in the extreme, yet they promise transformation. And, and this is a lie, it's a deceit. You cannot build a better Scotland, uh, a Nordic Scotland, a social democratic Scotland with the structure of high finance, banks, 
um, of big capital interests which, which predominate in this country. You can't do it on the basis of sterilization and a, a monetary union where you have no central bank, no control over the levers of monetary and fiscal policy. You can't rebuild or reindustrialize Scotland on that basis. So, you know, the SNP is straddling these contradictions. It's trying to have its cake and eat it. It's been trying to woo elite votes uh, while still promising change to working people. I think a lot of folk are pretty sick of it. Um, so it, it did feel pretty anticlimactic, the election. Um, I, I was voting in Glasgow Southside and I voted alongside 146 other citizens for Greg Energy Advisor, um, who is just kind of like a mad guy, um, but who wanted to um, renationalize the energy network and reduce utility bills. And he spoke about fuel poverty and I was like, grand, that's for me. And then like pretty much everyone I know um, voted kind of green on the list. And, you know, I think, you know, the Greens have made some small gains and they have hegemonized the young professional managerial class. But I, I, I think they are so limited culturally in their appeal to working people. And I'm not, I'm not sure how much bigger they can grow. Plus, I'm quite cynical by now of their role uh, with respect to SNP. Um, I don't think they're a true opposition. They're, they're, not, they're certainly not going to hold the SNP to account. Um, and they're probably just going to try and maximize um, support through um, marginally tinkering with SNP policy um, in the realm of ecology and perhaps in other areas. Sarah, I'm really interested to hear your take on this um, because, I mean, you're not an outsider because, as you've already said, you lived here in the, in the 90s and so on. Um, did you did you live down south for a time? I don't actually even know your, your sort of biography in this respect. I've lived in lots of different places. But, yes, so 20 years ago, in my 20s, I, I, I stayed in Glasgow. That's where right. I spent my 20s. Um, and it's just three years ago came back up um, to Edinburgh this time. So, so, you, so you would have been here in the 90s before, when, when the SNP, well, well they, were, they were kind of on the up in the sense, you know, they were, they, uh, they'd started to kind of occupy a certain niche, though, of course, that it, was the, it was the Scottish Parliament that gave them the opportunity proper to, to, to surge. But you, in the 90s, I mean, I, I remember in the 90s, my dad, I asked my dad, uh, who the SNP were. He's now, a, he's now a nationalist. He's now a member of the SNP. But he just said, because he was a Labour guy and, you know, they laughed at the SNP. He was like, ha, bunch of weirdos. You know what I mean? It's like a bunch of, bunch of folk in kilts doing little dances, little Kayleys. I think he used to say that they were just like the Lib Dems in kilts. I never heard the Tartan Tory line from them. I think he had too much contempt for them to describe them as Tories. They were just liberals in kilts. You know what I mean? It was, uh, they were a silly party. Um, he's now, you know, absolutely signed up uh, as many former as many former Labour Party uh, people are. Uh, partly out of disgust over things like the Iraq War and so on. I mean, I think for a lot of people, they just felt I can't keep voting for this. But anyway, so in the nineties, you know, this was still a baby project. 
And then you returned, you know, three years ago to find that it had exploded to monstrous proportions and completely guzzled up Scottish politics. So what's your, what was your kind of take on the election? Yeah, I mean, it, it's quite amazing, isn't it? That transformation over 20 years and that sort of, yeah, the Tories and this and people just not taken seriously in, in the 90s. I never, I can't even have, I don't have much recollection of them. They weren't really there and now they're fully dominating the scene. I mean, I mean, going back to what um, you said, Gregor, you used the word hallucinatory, and I've been using the word chimera politics. This is my own little word. It's like that illusion of a hope that is just never going to be fulfilled, but also a chimera in, in, in the sense of the scientific meaning of you've got these really, you know, that of having different DNA in the same body. We've now got such broad church, you know, parties, and I think this is true for Labour down south as well. It is for SNP up here. There's such broad electoral projects, really, broad churches pulling in loads of people. Um, that really, if those organisations and parties had any links and roots into communities, um, they wouldn't be, you know, these, these different wings wouldn't be in the same organisation. They would be different political organisations pursuing their ends to best to meet the needs of the people that they were trying to, to serve. So you've got these really, really broad electoral projects really I don't you know they don't really have the links even though of course there's a mass membership base and there was under Corbyn but the links the real links to the communities workplaces is really not there in in the sense uh, that it might have been in the past and you know it's just this idea of and in the independence party I mean you made the point I think David that we're in the acceptance speech Nicola Sturgeon's acceptance speech she didn't even mention the word independence I mean isn't this the whole point if I'm talking about independence, that wasn't just, you know, oh, I, I forgot. <laughs> it was a deliberate omission to mention that word. And it's like the whole strategy around what she's doing at the moment. There's a strategy, it seems to be, of um, hand-wringing, is what I would call it, is that we can't do anything about it. And, I, you know, if you think about the sort of... Um, when you, when you go into managerial speak and they talk about, you know, you need to present yourself as the person you want to be, project yourself as the person you want other people to see you as. If you take that into a political realm, I would expect at this point, following a pandemic, that the SNP would be presenting itself as the party that is fit to lead in an independent Scotland and showing that and actually trying to prove that in some of the actions that it could be taken, whether it be around Palestine, whether it be around cuts to council budgets, actually putting themselves out there they're doing nothing they just seem to be rolling back and sort of shrugging themselves their shoulders and saying well you know it's not anything we can do about it it doesn't seem to match up to this idea of a country that's going to stand on its own feet and make its own decisions when this is kind of the hand-wringing that's going on at the moment so it's a it's a it's a strange one you know I was really expecting, I didn't know what way the, the, the election would go in the campaigning, particularly. I either thought that there would be really strong messaging about we've been through a pandemic, can't go back to that, we need to have a different vision of a different future as an independent nation, but or it was going to be really understated and we're not promising very much at all. And it seemed to be the latter case, the softly, softly, you know, let's not talk about independence too much. I don't really know what the, the end game is there, really, but... It doesn't convince me that actually existing independence is, is is the end game. I don't know. It's a bit strange. I don't know what other people think about it, but I'm not convinced. I, I have wondered about this, and I, it's very hard to come to a, a 
my my general feeling is I don't think there's going to be a referendum even in this uh, even in this parliament. I think that um, what's going to happen is there's going to be a request for section thirty order. It's either going to be rebuffed or it's going to be negotiated to death by the UK government and all kinds of you know silly you know things about well you need to get over sixty five percent of the vote or something. I mean we've had referendums in, in Britain like that. You know two thirds vote is you know would secure independence or confirmatory vote or a three-option referendum, at which point whoever's in charge of the SNP will just need to say, I, we can't do this. I cannot, this isn't a, an in a, you know, independence referendum. And then the Tory government can just say, well, we offered it to you and you said no. Right? I mean, these are, there's a lot of tactics that the, the central government can actually deploy to deal with this. It's not just a question of, well, they say yes or they say no. There's a lot of ways to kick the can endlessly down the, down the road. And there's going to be a faction of both the Tories and the SNP for whom can-kicking is a really good idea, right? I mean, this is part of the problem. It's a bit like, um, do you remember that that theorist in uh, the Social Democratic Party that Rosa Luxemburg debated with Bernstein, was it? Um, who, who said, you know, the, the movement is everything, the goal is nothing, right? And what he was doing was providing a kind of aesthetic for... So the social democracy that we've become so used to, you know, this this kind of, well, we're endlessly, you know, uh, moving towards the great day, but the great day will never will never come, which is a very good kind of electoral strategy, at least until it completely wears everyone out. I sort of wonder if the SNP is becoming the stronger for Scotland party rather than the independence party. It's a party that always has independence on its menu, it always believes in it. In the same way, I mean, we've seen this happen before in Ireland, you have uh, Fianna Fáil, the Eamon de Valera's party, which was the Republican party, the pro-independence party that wanted to reclaim the, uh, the, the Northern Irish counties and, and uh, you know, wanted to proclaim the Republic and so on. Fianna Fáil became this party of institutional power and they couldn't get chucked out by anyone but they were always just haggling with, you know, diplomats about the North. There was never a real drive towards independence. So this is a real thing that happens. And this thing lives as well in Quebec today, where you have a, a nationalist party, a kind of centre-right national party, um, which is in favour of independence in theory, but not really. Right? It's mostly just about kind of Quebec identity, and Quebec rights and, in a Canadian setting. I wonder how far down the road the SNP has now travelled to being this kind of nationalist party. Um, but I, I mean, I, I hate this phrase. You know, it gets very overused in uh, kind of Western popular culture now. Gaslighting. You know what I mean? I do sometimes feel like we're being, you know, what I mean, like we're having our brains played with a bit here. You know, it was only a few months ago you had people like Ian Blackford, the Westminster leader of the SNP, and. Mike Russell, the Constitution Secretary, saying, uh, well, we're going to have a referendum in 2021. You know, it's been perpetually six months away for as long as I can remember. Uh, and you do wonder, you know, the psychology that allows that to keep going. You know, they use our hope against us, in a way, which is quite sort of uh, creepy. Um, any final thoughts on that, Gregor? Just to, just to kind of, you know... <laughs> end on maybe a slightly more upbeat note uh, he doesn't have one. I don't know how I go from there to upbeat um, you, you've uh, you've handed me a, um, 
Yeah, dodgy set of cards there. Um, I, but I, you know, I, I do fundamentally agree. I, I mean, some some of this stuff is just kind of symptoms of of decline, um, of the independence movement and its kind of dissolution into um, mythology. Um, and there's so much about the SNP government which is mythologized. I mean, Sturgeon's leadership is centrist, managerial, technocratic style over substance. And yet there's, you know, there's an army of social media uh, quote-unquote activists who, you know, are doing this girl boss Sturgeon thing, uh, you know, investing in her cultural capital and reproducing it um, and so on. And I think actually the Sam and Affair has ended up playing out quite well for, for Nicola. Um, and it, it's masked the fact that she has presided over a disastrous response to COVID, um, where, you know, more than 3,000 um, of our elderly citizens uh, perished in corporate uh, care homes around the country. Um, and we're subject to, you know, the decision to send elderly patients back from hospital without uh, COVID tests um, and clarification of their status in terms of COVID. Uh, and I, I do think um, accountability in this regard is severely lacking. Um, that's, that's not becoming more optimistic, is it? Uh, <laughs> I, have, I have an optimistic note. I have one, right? Which okay. is, look, I think over the next few years, we're going to see, it's going to be very hard to meter the changes that take place in, in society. You're going to see a very significant social and economic restructuring. What impact does this does that have on kind of this, this national consciousness that we have, which is very unusual, which is a kind of like left populist inflected national consciousness. And yeah, look, it's full of that. It's, it's, it's full of like, like, uh, as you say, kind of hallucinations about like I know lots of people who think that the solitaire flag is a left-wing flag. Like they, 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 do you know what I mean? They, they see that national imagery as representing something truly dissident, truly kind of rebellious and so on. Is there a lot of illusion built into that? Yeah, but that's the nature of ideology, right? That's the nature of ideology in a capitalist society. You know, so many people have projected a rebellious um, image onto things like Christianity or Islam or, do you know what I mean? New age religion or, you know, and indeed national consciousness there are lots of countries in the world where people think that their country is inherently the kind of like freedom country do you know what i mean it's not a it's not a kind of unknown thing that's that's you know how ideology works as a car carrier of ideas i think it will still be interesting to see how the changing circumstances impact on that once you get you know, mass unemployment in certain parts of the economy, which is likely given the uh, given the extent of uh, changes prompted by uh, the kind of COVID economy. So things like Amazon savaging the high streets, for example. When you get when when a method is finally found to deal with the debts that have been built up through money printing in the last year, right? And whoever has to bear that on their shoulders, and I think we all know who that's going to be. Um, when that stuff starts to hit, when those changes start to take place, and in the middle of that, you know, the Scottish government requests a, a, a referendum and at best they're given kind of gerrymandering, right? It will be interesting to see what the popular response to that is, is all I'm saying. And it could well surprise everyone. 
or you know it could be managed to death by the SNP they're very good at doing that but I do I do just still think you know uh, there's there's only so much you can can kick even though there's kind of more of a subdued mood in the independence movement I still think to, 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 to hundreds of thousands of people it's a really it's a it's a real question it's a real proposition so we'll just have to see how those those kind of tensions metabolize metabolize themselves I, I do think like any crisis within our social system and economic system the covid pandemic has revealed in stark clarity certain key dynamics which power our, our society and, and i think we've we've kind of laid them bare for a lot of people so um i think the question of skilled and unskilled labor um and the you know the ideology of meritocracy which supports the vast inequality in wealth and earnings in our economy, for instance, that has been dismantled um, in, in the course of the pandemic. Similarly, neoliberal privatization of public services, the marketization of our healthcare system, uh, commodification of uh, social care, these have been revealed to be murderous policies. Um, that's also important. Um, and I think most profoundly, the just erosion of the state and the capacity of the state to respond to this kind of global, um, you know, health catastrophe, how slow and lacking in agility um, and coordinating capacity it was, I think is, um, is really important. The question for me is, are we able to make sure that these revelations have political articulation and have political force post-COVID? Because there is a dynamic whereby when we get out, finally get out of this pandemic or return to some form of normality, you know, the, the forces in power will get some kind of boost uh, through the success of the vaccination program and so on. But I think it's incumbent on us to make sure that there's political memory at play here um, and we don't forget the anger um, of, of the mismanagement and the effective sacrifice of tens of thousands of, um, of people in this country on the altar of economic continuity um, and uh, you know, capital interests and so on. Thanks very much uh, for those last ruminations, uh, Gregor, and thanks very much to both of you, uh, Sarah and Gregor, for, for coming on Contacast today. I hope you've enjoyed it. And, uh, ne well, next week or perhaps the week after, we'll have to see, uh, we'll, we'll see the, uh, the glorious return of Cat Boys. We've been cooking up some ideas for shows and guests, and uh, I hope regular listeners are excited uh, by uh, what we've got coming up. Uh, and uh, I look forward to speaking to you all again soon, folks. Thanks, David. Thanks, David.